Welcome to the Lions Men Podcast, episode 22 overall. This is now season two, theoretically speaking, and today we are building off of episode 21, part one, our discussion about how to train youth soccer players with Dave Gleason and Erica Suter. So if you missed that episode, go ahead and listen to that because this episode builds right off of that one. But wow. First of all, welcome back to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Our first episode of 2020. 22nd episode in English overall. I'm thrilled to be back, excited about the conversations we're going to have this year, excited about what I'm going to learn, and you guys as well, excited about the people who are going to join us as guest hosts this year, and yeah, wow, thank you for your time and for coming back. Thank you for the feedback, for the questions, for the ideas, and without further ado, it's 2020. Let's learn something. Let's get it popping. Yeah, I saw a great session from Tony Strugwick at the coaches convention a couple years ago, and it was all about being able to get your players to a high intensity conditioning effect um, at over 90% of their maximum heart rate within a session, within a, a small sided and large sided game. And what he did was so cool. He had, it was 8v8 and it was a 50 by 50 pitch dimension and as soon as the ball went out, the coach would play it back in place. So no one was standing around. It was like, boom, we're back in it. Like we're going. So the players were constantly sprinting and changing direction the whole time. And he did, it was a three minute bout, which doesn't seem like a long time, but with the intensity they were going at, these guys were gassed. And then he gave them a two minute recovery. And then they went back on again and did the 8v8 game again, came back two-minute recovery, and then went back on again. And they were absolutely gassed. So that's just one example where players can get to that conditioning effect where it's a higher intensity than the actual 11v11 game. But there, at the same time, there needs to be a variety of conditioning. So small-sided games, large-sided games, but then – even without the ball. So maybe a 300 yard shuttle. So they're reaching full sprinting mechanics and still working on speed reserve. Um, Julie, I know you talk about speed reserve a lot if, if you want to get into what that means, but that's also something people need to keep in mind when conditioning their players. Yeah, absolutely. I just, for me, it's always keeping in mind that it's the faster players that generally win the games, like whoever gets there the fastest gets the ball. And so being able to run at an average pace at 80% for long distance doesn't mean you can hold a higher pace. So basically run faster. It's complicated. <laughs> I'll add the graphic into the, into the show notes, but the speed reserve essentially says that we need to sprint in order to get faster and then running, um, yeah, again, at 60% it, over a long period of time is not going to make you faster. Like, you can't do conditioning to get faster. You can't condition your way into being the fastest team. That's not how it works. You have to sprint. That's the only way to increase your speed. And that will also con increase your conditioning speed. Sorry, I'm feverish as fuck right now. So. <laughs> that was a great explanation. And the, the graph will definitely help. I'll stick the graph in the description box, yeah. Yeah. I think something that Erica mentioned too, from not just the session that she witnessed, but 
you referenced in other ways as well is a really great way to get conditioning in, in my opinion, with your, with your teams is through competition. So whether yeah. it's small-sided games with the ball, small-sided games without the ball, like tag, competition breeds intensity. The only way you can get faster besides working on technique, mechanics, and all the stuff that like we love to dive into in our sessions is to get them in a competitive environment. And then you get to control the intervals of time of work to rest, right? Yeah. So if you play the right type of a tag game, like 60 seconds, you're shutting it down and giving them three minutes rest because they're, they're literally like hands on their knees gasping for air. So those are the things that even the context of my programs we will do um, because A, they're more fun and, and B, you, you, you always have to like stop a game, but you got to force work. Like we'll do 300s because especially if we're getting our high school players ready for the high school season. Um, but like, it's not as fun as like, all right, we're going to play tag for like a minute straight. And the, the, the different types of that we play, it's like, Erica said, you're moving fast, nonstop, nonstop. So like, absolutely. Um, being creative with any type of, give them a time limit, let them pursue or chase or whatever um, in, in a game. And, and for those of you who are listening without like, trying to sell you on like I have a product out called speed games graphics acceleration or anything like that think of the childhood games you I just did didn't I, I just dropped that see how I did that it's but good think of the think of the uh <laughs> think of the childhood games you played growing up they still dodgeball. work dodgeball yeah yeah I mean just do that with your teams and just watch. Yeah. Yeah, dodgeball, capture the flag, Red Rover, <laughs> break some arms. Let's go. It's it's crazy how much all of that just gasses you. Like yep. even just dodgeball, like I'll jump in there some days with my athletes and I'm dying. Like so yeah, that's that's such a good point, Dave. Making it competitive and making it a game. Um, it, it always will increase the intensity naturally without you having to like blow a whistle or, or yell or motivate them further. Like they're just going to be motivated themselves to compete. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last little point I'll make, which hopefully isn't over the heads of you know, the soccer coaches out there is when they're in a, um, a, a strength and conditioning program, that's quality. In terms of the way the programming is set up, they'll also the kids will also get an aerobic benefit during strength training. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when they're in, in right into yeah. it, it happens during their rest periods because their average heart rate goes way up. Especially if we pair two exercises together, like a primary lift and a secondary lift, then they get yeah. 90 seconds rest. During that 90 seconds, their young body's aerobic capacity is increasing. So, like, there's so many ways to skin a cat, and literally, I think we all three of us agree, the last thing we need to do for soccer players is go run for 20 to 30 minutes at 60% of our our max heart rate. Oh, absolutely not. I, ha I had an athlete come to me a couple of weeks ago, 
15 and their coach said five days a week they're supposed to be running 5Ks and just like generally track their times. And it's like, but why? Like, why would you go run five kilometers at like an average pace? Because you know you're not paying attention. You're not doing it with intensity, especially if you don't have to track your times. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. overkill. And that's so much extra volume to put on legs. And on top of that, you got three to four times a week two-hour training sessions, then you've got strength and conditioning, and it's just like, and then Mm -hmm. one to two times a week games, and for a youth athlete, I mean, yeah, we can say that maybe their tendons and, um, and their bones and their musculature and everything is, like, starting to adapt to that, but probably not, because he's 15, (laughs) like, like, there's, that's not such a high training age where you can just brutalize an athlete, because, Youth athletes tend to mm-hmm. adapt very, very quickly to pretty much anything that we give them, which is a gift to us. So we need to also be very careful with what we give them and not give too much. Mm-hmm. They will become what they do. Yep. That's so concerning, that much distance, not even just for like the amount of volume and overuse, but it's like that much aerobic activity has its way of making your strength wither away. Absolutely. And- and your fast twitch muscle fibers. So if, if coaches are listening to this, if you want your players to be explosive and have a quote unquote good first step, don't have them do that much aerobic training. That's not how exercise physiology works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to be boastful for a second here because Eric and I spoke I don't know how many times as we were getting our athletes ready for high school ball this year um, in like all through August and like in the early September in the tryouts. And of course there's a ton of situations where they're still going to be timed on the two mile and there's a lot of stress and anxiety over it. And the thought process is I have to run long distance to do better at that. So neither one of us, ran our kids in that way once every single kid that we trained killed their two mile time like a hundred percent it wasn't like oh most of our kids did pretty well like it's just and it's not even erica or myself in our training it's just we did like she just mentioned the word exercise physiology it's how the body works it's science so we use that science to put our kids in a situation where they could prepare to play soccer and oh yeah they smoked everybody in the two mile yeah. i think I it's, it's that, important to say yeah. also that that we don't train athletes to pass their performance diagnostics like we train athletes right, to right. compete well on the pitch and so i get really irritated yeah. as well when coaches want to talk mm-hmm. about like oh well this athlete is going to be so our version of the da the da would be like our u teams right so same difference. Mm-hmm. Um, we want this athlete to play U17 or U16 next year, and they need this and this score on their um, last week's diagnostic or their performance test. Uh, we need you to get us there. Well, if I give you a better soccer player and a better athlete overall, which is the first thing I want to do, make them a better athlete, more resilient, faster, stronger, they're going to do better on the pitch, but they're also going to do better in their testing because they're already a better athlete. So like, what do you want from me? <laughs> Or do you just want right. them to pass that two-mile time, get on the team, and then suck on the pitch? What are, what's the goal? Between the two of us, Erica, I don't know how many athletes we trained over the summer to get ready for fall high school soccer. But, I mean, we would almost allow 
some of the kids to go out and do a two mile on their own because they just wanted to see where they were at. And if, you know, cause again, there's a lot of stress over it, a ton of stress because there's so much emphasis placed on it by the varsity high school coaches. And um, it was just so gratifying to, to have our kids have that much success. And on the other side of it, know that we just saved them from so much wear and tear in their body. Yeah. And, you know, we set them up to, like you said, they're going to be a better player. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely nice to see the a, a good strength and conditioning program and one where we didn't even run more than a mile over the length of summer off season and everyone's just killing it. Um, so that, that was really cool to see. W one thing that I worry about with these two mile tests for, for kids who don't have a strength and conditioning coach or who go into the summer freaking out, it's, it's really scary because if you're a kid who doesn't know what to do and how to prepare for this, they're probably thinking, Oh shoot. Like I got to like, run two miles like three times a week to like get ready for this because like as as a teenager that's what makes sense to them yeah and that much wear and tear for all those months is really scary and that's the message that sometimes the like the two mile test sends to teenagers and and I saw and I saw that a lot with like some of my high school girls. I told them I was like, just trust me. Like you don't need to be doing this two to three times a week. Just stick with the program. Like don't do anything else. You can run it a couple times just to mentally prepare, but you don't need to do it every week. And I, I had to have a lot of tough conversations this summer with players with parents letting them know why this is a problem and how they need to train. And none of this is coming from a place of, I told you so, or this is, this is how you should train. Listen to me. Like all these tough conversations are coming from a place of extensive research and years of experience, knowing what is good for kids. And it's, mm -hmm me speaking my truth it's me saying what the kids need and that's all I can do and if people respond well to that great if not then that's fine but I'm not doing my job as a strength and conditioning coach if I'm not having tough conversations and if coaches are listening to this we can all vent on Twitter and in blog articles and scream into this abyss of nothing. But if we're not having tough conversations with parents on a daily basis, we're not doing our jobs. Absolutely. Boom. Can I, can I kind of wrap up this topic a little bit, unless you had something to say, Julia? No, please go for it. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the two mile test, Erica knows this. I get myself in trouble sometimes because I will post, <laughs> um, I will post some stuff that's like directly in the face of what coaches, DOCs, and club owners want their clubs to do, um, and it's always in a, it, 
it, it comes from a place of just wanting to help the kids and, and educate, but sometimes I'm a little like I'm venting about it because I, I see something I'm like, I can't believe I just saw this. <laughs> but when I have conversations with coaches, so this is for the coaches that are listening. Cause like we've talked a little bit about like what to do and what not to do when it comes to conditioning. You, you guys need to know that. Um, Cause like a lot of the reason why you may do a two mile is this is the answer I typically get from a coach is, well, it allows me to quickly figure out who did their, like who did their work over the summer, who worked harder the summer and who came in prepared to play. And I agree with that. I mean, you need maybe some measurable on that to see like, you know, who came in and they didn't put any time in at all to preparing for the season. But there are much better things you can do than the two mile. Like, for instance, one of the things you want to do if you have enough intensity in all the drills and all the competitions you put together during your tryouts and preseason, use your eyes. Like, you are going to be able to tell who has put in the work. Yeah. Because the kids that haven't through any given drill are going to start to drop. And one of the first things you'll see if it's a skilled player is their skill level will go down dramatically because skill goes down when you're mentally and physically tired. So like use your, the eye, I call it the eyeball test. Use your eyes to evaluate your kids. And then, I mean, there's a million other measurables out there, whether you want to do a 300, whether you want to do a Man U or North Carolina to kind of test their, their conditioning a bit and see who's put in some work that are far, it's, that are far more valuable than the two miles. So I just, in wrapping this up, I just wanted to say like, we understand why you may be doing the two mile, but it, again, it's just not necessary. It's not the best thing for your kids and there's better things you can do. Agreed and love that summary. Let's hop really quickly into injury reduction. I know that the three of us agree that strength and conditioning and a well-planned, well-structured annual plan and working with a strength and conditioning coach also functions as an injury reduction protocol, let's say, because a stronger athlete, a faster athlete, an athlete who can move better will always hopefully prevail, um, or at least the data tells us that they prevail more often over athletes who are weaker, slower, and have poor movement quality. So let's talk a little bit more about the specific things that we should be using with youth athletes um, as young as you guys would like to go, starting from, let's start from the youngest. So maybe Dave, you want to kick it off with where do we start when it comes to injury reduction more specifically? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I think the, what comes to my mind right away is it's not anything special. Like um, a lot of times when I'm programming so I'll just go as young as six to eight years old, and then we, we break them up from there to nine to 11. I look at um, movement exploration discovery. I look at seven to eight different elements of coordination training. Uh, I look at cooperation and behavior shaping, that type of stuff. I look at systemic strength training. So big, large movements, crawling, rolling, climbing, pulling, pushing, changing elevation. And as I program out, more often than not, I'll look at one of my coaches as we're going through the new program and I say, now look at the injury resilience this is going to give for their ankles, knees, and hips. And they're like, oh my gosh, so much. So for me, 
I don't necessarily program for injury resilience or resistance or reduction. I know that as you kind of frame this whole topic, if, if I program for the needs of those kids for where they are from a chronological and developmental age, they're going to get a ton of injury resistance training because again, that's what we did naturally growing up. You know, when I was wrestling with my next door neighbor um, in the backyard growing up, because, you know, we were going at it with the soccer ball and one of us got mad at the other. And then, you know, like you're at each other for a few minutes, all that pushing, tugging, rolling, pulling, that was all injury resistance. When we were climbing trees and building stuff and lugging stuff, moving logs so we could ride our bikes and make a path, that was all strength training and injury reduction training. Um, so now when we fast forward to putting together a programming a program for especially the youngest kids, um, I'm really trying to give them what they're not getting on a day-to-day basis at home, in the backyard, in the neighborhood, in PE a lot of times, certainly on the pitch in their practices. I'm trying to fill in those gaps. And those gaps are really everything that naturally occurred as we, we grew up when we were younger. Um, so I hope that answers the question, especially when it comes to the younger kids. Um, for me, as we get into middle school and high school, course we see trends and generalities in terms of you know it's a multi-directional sport so we see ankles we see knees unfortunately we see a lot of uh hips and deep deep tissue hip flexor issues we see from time to time lower backs so what types of things can we put in our programming that will lend itself to more injuries resilience and resistance for a soccer player um, and with that, the easiest answer is, it's a, for us, it's a ton of single leg movements. Um, it's also a ton of like all, all of our mobility activation and uh, all of our mobility and activation work is done barefoot. We start from the feet up. Um, that's also another very important element. So for the older kids, I, I look at it a little bit differently than our younger um, where I will look at, all right, how can we protect their ankles, knees, hips, um, lower back, again, in some cases, due to, like, the forces of the sport and what they're going to endure uh, in the sport. Younger kids, kids, it's it's more or less filling into the gaps what they're not already getting and preparing them for those more advanced programs as they get older. Yeah, great point. I love that you specifically addressed starting from the feet up because I think the feet are so viciously overlooked and that's simply not a good thing because anybody who's ever put their um, feet in football boots knows that cleats are not the best thing that ever happened to mankind and those do not make your feet strong. However, we need very strong feet in order to play soccer. So um, mm-hmm. yes, that's also very important to us. Erica, you do a lot of barefoot training, unilateral training, um, stability training as well, um, just not on the BOSU ball. You always tag me and stuff on the BOSU ball and we laugh about it together. So why don't you take, take it and give us your side? Yeah, well, I, as Dave was just talking, I was just nodding my head like an idiot over here the whole time. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
injury reduction is really what what Dave said. It's a, a well-rounded performance program. It's performance training. And a lot I think a lot of people uh, get it wrong when they think it's some standalone program that resides in like Hogwarts or some like magical land yeah. like BOSUs and weird balance exercises with with no weights no strength training um and, and it's not it's really just smart periodized strength and power training obviously your mobility and activation work uh, proper recovery days, uh, soft tissue work, and also recovery for the nervous system. Um, but also, and I know Dave will um, speak to this a lot, but really focusing on speed and agility technique. A lot of people won't think these are skills, but they are. And with the older ages, we need to teach them how to properly load their hips and, and decelerate in a position that's not going to make their knees unstable um, or accelerate and run at maximal speed with good ankle mobility and they're not putting so much load on their, their patellar tendon. There's so much that goes into making athletes faster and more agile and as a byproduct they're going to be more resilient to injury if proper technique is taught. And uh, Dave introduced me to all of Lee Taft's work, and it's absolutely incredible. Um, for all the coaches listening, I definitely recommend you check it out. Lee is a biomechanical he, genius. It, it's incredible. And he really breaks down how to decelerate uh, linearly, uh, laterally, and it's because a lot of uh, knee injuries happen when decelerating and when um, players are unable to pump the brakes properly. So I really love how he breaks it down in his certifications. And the, these are skills we cannot ignore when it comes to injury reduction. I'm glad that you, you had mentioned that. Um... You know, I actually, I've started to, I started polling a bit on Twitter and uh, it was probably about a month and a half ago. I, I put out a poll to soccer coaches, DOCs and owners. And it was basically asking them if they felt that speed and agility warranted the same purpose or demanded, should demand or warrant the same um purpose and instruction from a skill standpoint as skills on the ball and um, most responded positively saying yes and that is the truth of the matter <clears throat> there was a, a fair number of coaches that were not sure I think it was like 11 percent and then there were six percent that said no hmm. so in total that's about 17 percent almost 20 percent of people that teach the game from what I pulled don't know or believe that there's skill involved in accelerating top end speed, decelerating, stopping and reaccelerating. Um, and we just, yeah. Yep. So it, it's, it's so, it's so, so important. Now for everybody listening, we're not asking you guys to be speed and agility experts. 
um, at all. Just know that blowing the whistle again, hoping that they're going to do whatever you're doing faster is not going to get it done. A lot of times, very simple, simple cues or fixes, if you will, will make a huge difference in terms of how fast they can accelerate, how fast they can turn their hips and retreat, how quickly they can decelerate, stop and reaccelerate. Um, very simple little things that um, you know we we write about, uh, we post about all the time. So uh, for those of you who are especially Erica and Julia, if you're not like following and reading everything they write, you will learn a ton, and it's valuable information that you can take back to your practices and little things to look for that will not only help with performance, which, would I, which is what I've kind of laid out, but as Erica put so well, if foot positioning, knee positioning, shoulder positioning is in the wrong spot on a change of direction, that can cause a catastrophic knee injury. Absolutely. Angle catastrophic. Baby. Yep. Yep. Well, it's all biomechanics. It's physics. So physics. like, yeah knowing what to look for and, and giving little fixes like most times athletes will when they change direction and it's not what we would de deem doing it well their toes are pointed out their knee is inside of their ankle their shoulders are swaying to the outside yeah bad positioning that's an acl tear waiting to happen if their knee is at the right angle their ACL will be gone. And I want to say one thing there, Dave, because the technique you just described, the position of the ankles, knees, hips, and shoulders, and how their posture is. But as much as we cue that technique, if an athlete is not doing strength training as a complement to all of this, their technique won't get that much better because there's still going to be a weakness in their core. There's going to be a weakness in being able to load their hips and hamstrings and having the mobility in their ankles. So this all needs to be multifaceted. I just want to make that clear to everyone who's listening. That's a, that's an awesome point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always said that strength training will do two things. For an athlete one it'll, it'll make whatever way that they move more permanent yeah so if they're not increasing the skill in which they move and their strength training it can also be very detrimental right um and the other thing i've always said about strength training which is what what erica just mentioned which is so important is strength training makes all that stuff just mean more so when you get a, a an athlete grooving a really good pattern, whether it's acceleration or deceleration or reacceleration or top end speed, and they're a stronger athlete from head to toe, that's when you start to just watch them move and go, wow. Totally. hundred percent. Yep. Guys, this was a fully loaded conversation. I think that's, <laughs> You guys really nailed everything, and I want to thank you so much for coming on. One last thing I'd like to just jump into really quick, and I'd love to give you both maximum a minute to answer this. How do you make it fun for kids to come to strength training? Like, what's important to you? I believe that, that they're still kids. Let them stay kids. 
don't treat them like professional athletes and I know you guys do too so in under a minute or as quickly as you can lightning rounds Erica tell me how and why you keep it fun for kids in your training Mm -hmm. well across all ages uh every time they come in I usually crack a joke (laughs) um (laughs) So it, it really doesn't matter how good my programming is. If I'm not being myself and if I'm not goofy, then they're not looking forward to spending all that time with me. So I definitely try to just be myself and, and have fun with it and, and give them all the care I have. And then um, with the younger ages, we're always doing a fun game that, that they're not getting in their team practices or just in life and just making sure they're having the autonomy to solve problems on their own, to create, uh, to work together, and to really feel like they're coming into the gym, uh, not as an obligation, but more so as an escape from the, the grind of, of life and, and school and everything else. Yeah, that's great. Dave? Uh, the first thing that I'll say is meet them where they are. So if it's a six or eight to eight-year-old, you got to meet them where they are and be willing to be like goofy and fun. And like, it's just going to be like the the most fun 45 minutes to an hour that they could possibly had without their head exploding. So um, not that you don't hold them accountable from a character and behavior standpoint, but like as Eric meant, Erica mentioned, it's, it's a ton of games, but it's, it's meeting them where they are at they level at their level and also knowing that they're kids. So a six-year-old is not going to attend to you for an hour straight. They're going to be looking off to like your squat rack, or they're going to be going, Hey, what's this over here? Or they're going to be staring at the floor. They're going to be running around like a puppy in the backyard. Give them those little moments and then just let them know, okay, buddy, or, you know, okay, guys, this is the time where you guys need to listen to coach because I want you guys to be safe and I want you to know what's going on. Boom, done. You're in it show them the next thing and you go, but give them those little moments. So that's part of meeting them where they are. And that is true for every age group up. So six to eight year olds, nine to 11, middle school age kids and high school kids. Like Eric and I have talked a lot about like those little conversations that you have in between sets or rounds or those conversations as they walk in the door where they walk in, you can tell something is up and they know that you're someone that, has their back and they can just vent if they want to or you know like here like we can ask them like hey how's your fantasy football league doing like it's not just sets and reps and getting your work done and pounding it and like making you leave all sweaty it's treating them like a human being and a human being based on the age that they're at um, so that they feel like they're really part of something that's bigger than themselves and they're part of a culture where like we joke around in my facility, like we want them to, I, we want them to say like, we're the center of the universe. Like we're what they're talking about at the dinner table. We're what they're talking about the whole car ride home. Cause it was so fun or, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. So um, that's um, a quick answer to a, a pretty loaded question. I mean, we could probably do, um, you know, a longer talk on that having to deal with like culture and how your culture will dictate not only how much fun the kids are having in your program or in your practice sessions or in your club, but how long they're going to stay. 
Yeah, and as we know, keeping kids in the program is really vital. It doesn't help to have them just for a month and then they lose interest. Um, we're interested in investing for the long-term, long-term athletic development. Right. Yes, thank you guys so, so much for coming on. Um, can you quickly give your social media links where people can contact you online and like your stuff, follow you, ask questions, get in touch? Yeah, um, you guys can find me on Instagram and Twitter at FitSoccerQueen. Um, I did that on purpose so no one forgets it. <laughs> Petty. It works. It works. The, the queen um, in the north. You guys can also... Yeah, right. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram as well. On Twitter, um uh at youth fitness. Again, I'm so old that no one had that handle yet. That so, is a baller uh, handle. Uh, that is like yeah, at at youth fitness and uh on Instagram it's uh coach Dave Gleason. Awesome. Yeah, Instagram, uh you weren't too too quick to that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well that was a little you know it's older guys so i needed my kids to show me how to sign up for it and all that yeah right exactly <laughs> you were with the 2017 crew and not with the 2012ers <laughs> that's right that's right thank you guys so much for listening guys thanks for coming on and this i believe will be the last episode before 2020 or the first episode of 2020 so with that said wishing you all a very happy holiday season and a happy new year Thank you.